0: From the outside and everything, and this is many people, my life looked really squeaky clean, you know, I was fun, I was outgoing, I was, you know, relatively successful, I was, you know, a high achiever, but underneath, I was absolutely dying, you know, and it's very, very exhausting and difficult to keep up that facade.
1: Hello, it's Andrew May and this is the NAB Business Fit Podcast, where we chat with experts and leaders in a range of fields, delving into their world to find out what fuels them and to learn lessons that can be applied to running a small business, which is especially important right now. We have conversations about how they've adapted to new ways of working and share stories about adapting and navigating through challenging times. And have we got a good one for you today? In 2013, when everyone was saying, do not touch the publishing world, the media industry was apparently on its last legs. But today's guest took this as a cue to jump right in. With no industry experience, she sold two houses and launched a lifestyle and entrepreneur print magazine that quickly formed into a multi-platform media empire distributed across 37 different countries, including digital, live events, publishing, even her own product line. But that's only part of her success story. She's the founder and editor-in-chief of The Collective Hub, CEO of The Messenger Group, a best-selling author who turned the publishing model into a self-publishing model. I know that personally because I published my first book with her, Lisa Messenger. Welcome.
0: (laughs) Andy, thank you. What an introduction. Wow. Okay, let's hope this interview lives up to that intro.
1: (laughs) It will and it's a big introduction and I could go the normal path and say tell me about your success and do that and do this but you said nothing's off limits so let's flip it a little bit. You've built publishing empires, you've built speaking empires, your household name. What don't you do well?
0: Oh my gosh, so many things. (laughs) You know, well firstly, I'm absolutely terrible at detail, so I have to have detail-orientated implementers who actually do things around me all the time. There's a lot of things I don't do well. In fact, I'm one of those people who's, I kind of do a lot of things. I'm not particularly good at any of them. What I'm good at is surrounding myself with really, really clever people.
1: (laughs) The 26 books that you've published, so they've got your fingerprints on, 400 plus books with a messenger group. I'm going to pull you up on that. You must be okay at taking words and messages to print. So come on, a little bit of self-recognition there, Lisa.
0: Thank you. Well, except you've known me a long time. I mean, I think we've known each other nearly... 20, 16 to 20 years, something like that.
1: We met back in, I think we were both 10. Yeah, that <laughs> 10. would be about right.
0: This is a very good point. But the point I will make is this is that at school, I did what was called unceremoniously veggie English. And it was for the people who were, you know, really bad at communicating and really bad with words and really bad at English. And so, you know, I failed at a lot of things before I actually became something. And in fact, my first book I wrote in 2004 called Happiness Is, and that purely came out of the fact that I was so desperately unhappy. So I decided to go and interview people about what happiness meant. So my foray into publishing and being an author was very accidental. And even 26 or 30 or something books later, you know, even when you go, Oh, you're an author, I go, Oh, yeah, I guess I am, right? It's still is kind of a weird concept to me all these years later.
1: Two things I'd like to pick up on that. The first is you said veggie English. So we'll call that base level English, okay, for anyone who doesn't understand the country New South Wales terminology. (laughs) Now, you were born in Cooler. You know I'm from Dubbo or I finished school in Dubbo.
0: I did not know that. And yeah, I spent the first 11 years of my life pretty much in Cooler. So there you go, an hour or so away from you.
1: Well, 80 kilometers. And people would incorrectly say to you, oh, Cooler, that's near Dubbo, right? No, no, Cooler is near Dunny Do, And Dunny Doo is near Dubbo. So you know, from Cooler, when you're doing low level English to publishing a book, is a big thing. So the first thing, first question, did you have a teacher, a leader, a sponsor, someone? who backed you and said, you can do this, despite what the education system told you? Was there a turning point?
0: Yeah. And the education system, we can dig deeper into that as well, because I'm very big on kind of the divergent as opposed to convergent education system. I think... In Cooler, there was a teacher called Miss Garethy, who I think I remember all those years ago, who kind of believed in me and saw something in me. But it was a lot of years later that I actually saw something in myself. And in fact, I went to boarding school in Sydney from Cooler. I went to Ascom. And I remember, uh, and people will relate to this sometimes, I remember a teacher called Mr. Kamarami, who was my maths teacher, and he actually was so fed up with me asking, but how, but how, but why, but why, the things that now hold me in good stead being an entrepreneur all these years later, that he actually picked me up one day whilst I was still sitting on my chair. Chair and Lisa Messenger get picked up and carried outside the maths room, plonked outside, and he just closed the door. I also started studying guitar. I don't remember learning a single note, like not one. I remember very vividly The green carpet on the stairs outside the guitar room. So I was unfortunately one of these people who was at school mostly seen as a rebel because I was always questioning the system. And so I probably didn't have a lot of people, unfortunately, through the schooling system who really Got me. It took me a while to get myself as well.
1: <laughs> well, I think kids like you who were picked up—you can't do that now in the school system, right? You couldn't pick a kid up because the parents would be saying, "Oh, this is so terrible." You get suspended as a teacher. But the rebels, the risk-takers, become the entrepreneurs—the calculated risk-taking, which we'll talk about. Have you ever gone back to Miss Garrity and said, "Hey, you planted that seed I mean, Why I ask, I got asked to do a talk in Tenworth last year by Mister Larkin. I still can't call him Mick, and Mister Larkin now would be in his early or mid fifties. And I said in front of a whole bunch of Catholic school principals that this guy inspired me to do well in modern history. And he actually said to me, quote, stay hanging out with your dead shit mates, but forget them when you walk into English in modern history. So that planted a seed inside me that I will never forget. So I'm, I'm forever grateful to Mr. Larkham.
0: I haven't gone back to Miss Garethy. Maybe I need to find her, but there are certainly other people who've been mentors and catalysts in my life who, you know, I will be forever grateful for and indebted to. And actually one person who's worth calling out was a person I think we met at the same time, Matt Church. So I think it was around 2003, 2004, and that was really my first foray into business. And I remember walking into a room with these thought leaders and I'd heard his name a number of times. And finally, I got myself along to one of his intimate weekends. And I think that was really something that changed my life. And I think it's really important, you know, as we have a few more rungs on the board and we move through life to never forget where we started and who really gave us the impetus to begin and really believed in us, and, and he was one of those people for me.
1: Did I with Matt? I saw him speak. In fact, I saw three people speak: Matt Church, Amanda Gore, and Doug Maloof at a similar time. All lifestyle speakers, and I want to do that. So it's great to acknowledge that. So you know, Matt inspired you. You would have gone down the with Cicero Project path. Now thought leaders. But the other thing I wanted to come back to, you just said before, so one was thanking Ms. Garrity and acknowledging people that give us a ride along the way. It's very important. And you do that beautifully across your publishing and your podcast and your platforms and all of your P's, which we're going to get to. The second thing, though, when you wrote happiness is you were unhappy. I've seen you write a lot about this. We used to share offices in Surrey Hill, share the same street. So we'd often have a coffee. And I can remember at that time, you were sad, you were unhappy. So, what do you do now for both your physical and your psychological health?
0: God, you know, it's such an important question, and something I think both you and I are really passionate about. And for me, I go through, you know, peaks and troughs in life. And I always say we can't control what comes at us every day, but we can control our mindset and how we choose to respond. And so, I've just I suppose, harness the tools over the years and I don't always get it right still. (laughs) And I forget, you know, sometimes I get complacent and I often find when I'm cruising along and everything's fabulous and I'm on top of the world and, you know, I call it in flow as opposed to walking through mud. Sometimes that's when I forget my rituals and routines and my disciplines and the things that I check into. And it's only when I suddenly find myself discombobulated that I'm like, whoa, quick. And so for me, it's really important to stay Tapped into those things in the good times and the bad.
1: How do you start your day? Yeah, give me a day. And can I go a bit deeper?
0: Go as deep as you want because, you know, because I think the thing is people see the successful side but they don't see all the really tough stuff. And in the last three years in particular, like I've had ridiculously, insanely tough stuff come at me. My father-in-law passed away unexpectedly seven weeks ago of a heart attack. My own dad passed away three years ago of a heart attack. When my dad passed away, I was right in the middle of practically losing Collective Hub, the very thing that I'd built up, you know, so I was already on my knees crying unceremoniously on the bathroom floor every night and then that came. So there's stuff all the time. So yeah, let's dig deep on what I
1: do. Okay, so let's dig deep, first of all, on a good day. And can I divide? I go to the south coast, to Jaroa to write. So I look at Sydney as the... Crazy concoction of connecting, and there's a lot of C's there. I'm sounding like a motivational speaker right now. (laughs)
0: Well, you are one of those.
1: (laughs) It's the noise and connection with my team. And then when I go to Jaroa, I purposely isolate myself from the world and I write. Now, you live between Bondi and and Bangalore or Byron. Do you break that down? So, do you write in one place? Do you work in another place? So, tell me that first. Then we'll go to what you do on a good day.
0: Yeah. So, I do to a degree. But even more importantly, I actually break my day into two and it took me a long time to get comfortable with this. So uh, we are recording this podcast at, what time are we even at? 10am. So I do not do anything generally that is reactive in the world before 10am. So I kind of go from say 7am until 10am is me time. It is proactive time. It is all about mental and physical agility for me and getting myself really grounded and really set up for the day. And that's not negotiable. So that looks like, you know, I'll get up and do personal training or yoga. I will journal I'll meditate, drink a green smoothie, I'll listen to a podcast, I'll read something. So that kind of time is me time and it's really filling myself up. And it took me a lot of years... To get okay with that. Because I had a bricks and mortar office where I ran a lot of a big team for 17 years. And it took me a long time, probably almost 16 years in, to get comfortable with not going to the physical office until 10 a.m. and feeling that I was okay with that. And then from 10 a.m., it's game on. Like whatever the world needs of me, I am there and I can really show up then because I've started my day in a very grounded way, filling my own cup up, if that makes sense. In terms of writing, Because yes, the world is busy and there is a lot coming at us continuously. Sometimes I'll carve out, you know, very specific times where I'll go to Bangalore. So we're going on the 12th of December until the 12th of January for a month. And I'll do a whole lot of writing. I'll do a whole lot of exercise. I'll do a whole lot of stuff that the world isn't pulling at me in every direction for a little while. So yeah, really important.
1: Can I go back to until 10 a.m.? You've got around 1 million social media followers. I don't think you know all of them, right? So that's a lot of people that are (laughs) messaging, connecting, posting, pinning, dropping, dragging, commenting, rewarding, all that stuff. Do you stay off social media until after 10am? Have you got that discipline as well?
0: You know what? That's a work in progress. I try... And to be honest, so I have a love-hate relationship with social media, as many people probably do. And I don't use the word hate often. So let's just say, don't love. The part of it that doesn't keep me present that I feel like I'm out in nature and I go, it's so beautiful. And my brain will go to, oh my gosh, should I take a photo for my Instagram grid? Should I do a story? Maybe that'd be great on Twitter. Maybe I should write a post about that on LinkedIn about the philosophical you know, nature and what I'm learning from that. And so I think this is a problem in our fast paced society that, you know, every single one of us now is a producer is a is a publisher is a content person really whatever we do whoever we are to a degree and so I have to then untrain my brain to kind of go actually just be present just enjoy this the world doesn't need to know every single second of your life you know so I have to be very conscious about that and the love part of the social media thing is you know it actually is a currency these days. It gives us an opportunity to actually connect with a whole lot of people and carry our message. There's some really beautiful, amazing things about it. I'm sure many of your listeners have just watched The Social Dilemma, as have I. I think it's a very good wake-up call and just a good reminder of what's actually going on out there. So, yes, to answer your question, any a little more discipline about the morning. I try not to pick up my phone. I try to get out in nature. I try to do my exercise very consciously before I pick it up. But sometimes it's just a little too <laughs> attractive.
1: <laughs> it's the dopamine hit. I don't think I've told you about my 30 minute rule. Could we have not an- spoken the love. We've messaged online everything, but we haven't actually caught up either in Zoom or real life for ages. But the 30-minute rule, the first 30 minutes of every day, get off your technology. During the middle of the day, have 30 minutes where you go and do grounding, walk with shoes off, nature, just connect. And 30 minutes before bed, I get my executive clients to do that lease. They come back a month later and they think it's this magic part. What have you done to me? I'm thinking better. I'm sleeping better. I'm more creative. So you just create those bookends and boundaries and a little thing in the middle of the day. Now that said, I'm just thinking this morning, I went cycling with my mates and I check my mobile phone first thing. So let's move on. I broke the 30 minute rule this morning.
0: <laughs> well, we're, yeah, we're not, per- we're not perfect. That's for sure.
1: But those rituals and routines definitely help. And I've learned a lot on that from you, especially with writing about cocooning and getting away from stuff. Cause when you're in an open plan office, Hey, you've got a minute, that minute we know through neuroscience, it can take you 25 plus minutes to get back into it. So to go a bit deeper, that's on a good day. You've spoken and written and podcasted and every medium openly about some of your battles with mental health. Uh, You gave up alcohol. Congratulations. And I know you're so proud of that. You have an anniversary around that. And you've had some downs that have played out on the public forum as well. So when you're having a challenging time, what do you do and how is it different to the good day?
0: Yeah. And thank you. I think that's really important to acknowledge. And yes, my anniversary, my fiance laughs at me because I remember all my anniversaries, <laughs> my business anniversary, 22nd of October, 2001, and my sobriety anniversary, which is the 8th of November, 2004. So yeah, 16 years sober. And that's just, for me, what I would say to anyone listening around that before I get to what I do on a down day, it's around how was I self-sabotaging? How was I keeping myself small? What was I using as a crutch? And kind of going back to the school side of things, and hopefully a lot of people listening will relate to this to some degree. Inside of me, I think I always knew that there was something ready to come out, some way to, you know, make a mark in the world. And I felt I wasn't surrounded by people who really inspired me or, you know, allowed that to come out. So what i did was i drank and i partied and you know that kind of filled me up but it was a very lonely very depressing way to be. And, you know, I spent a lot of my twenties feeling very suicidal and it just was horrible. So I hit a complete rock bottom and that's what I chose to do. And, you know, just putting down the drink, people are like, amazing, not amazing. Like that was the start of the journey because of course you put down the drink and then I had to deal with all the demons and why I was actually drinking. And so, you know, years and years of therapy and a number of different modalities. And I love all of that kind of thing. So on a bad day, You know, and it's hard when we're in that space where you just think having a pity party or actually for me, sometimes, you know, it really comes out as like real depression or anxiety or overwhelm. And, you know, even though ridiculously all these books in and, you know, I've been to AA, I've crawled through sweat lodges nude in Costa Rica. I've spent weeks at a time in Osho's meditation retreat in India, wearing purple robes. I mean, you name it, I have done it right yet still on a bad day. I can really think, I don't want to get up. I don't want to do this. So this is when the tools and the toolbox are so important. And so I need to know what are my triggers and what's going to switch me out of this. So I freaking love dancing. I love dancing to deep house. I love getting groove on. So sometimes I'll just put on music and I'll be, you know, unashamedly, just have a dance around my living room. It'll just shift me or I'll go for a run or I'll just get still and I'll get barefoot and I'll walk on the grass or on the sand in nature or I'll jump in the ocean. So whatever it is, and more often than not, it's really simple things that are free, I'll just do it, you know, just to shift. Now the difference pre-starting to do the work on myself is I just would have spiralled into a deeper, deeper, darker hole. But now even when and despite feeling hideous I kind of know okay this is just now this is a chemical thing or this is you know a result of external triggers or whatever's going on for me but I can now see the light and I know that it's just a temporary feeling and so what I do is rather than sit with it for too long. I'll actually push myself out of it by something that I know will lift it. You know, the inside of me, sometimes my brain is fighting it. Nah, I just want to have a pity party today. Forget it. I don't feel like going for a run. I don't want to walk in nature. You know, the brain part of me, not the heady part of me will fight it, but I just have to, you know, shift. And sometimes it's okay to sit with it and cry and be in it and feel. I think that's important. But you've got to have the tools to shift you out of it, you know?
1: Discomfort for a little period of time can be a massive motivator. Yeah. A really good reflection point. And we'll talk about COVID before we go today as well. And I'm dying to know how you've adapted your business model through these challenging times. But if you have a pity party for too long, in the end it's only you because your family members get sick of you as well, right? So you're there, you're flying the pity party flag. But I want to commend you on two things. One is Sort of hearing that I put on my psychology hat and exercise physiology hat you're showing a really high level of self awareness but also self regulation so you know the triggers to help you whether it's nature whether it's journaling whether it's exercise crazy dancing you don't want to see me dance it's a double <laughs> bobbles it's not really nice but so you've obviously done a lot of work on that because a lot of small business owners would look at someone like you and go oh 26 books she's done herself 400 books collectively 37 countries with her magazine and print all over social media she's Those Richard Branson, I'm going to talk about your phone index in a minute, it's ridiculous. But I think it's really nice for real people to hear from a real person who's worked out some of her demons and some of her challenges. And what you've got is a manual to actually put that into practice, both on a good day and a challenging day. That takes a lot of work. That takes challenge and pain and struggle but commend you for doing it, right? Because you've got to dig deep. And I think sometimes people look at you and I'm sure they say, hey, you're so successful. Has it always been easy?
0: It's not easy. And I mean, every single day, I also do all sorts of other um, wacky kind of rituals. Some of them are just visualizations. Like the other day I was um, feeling quite angry and frustrated around something. And so some of my stuff is quite wacky, but I've taught myself to visualize and just get really still in a meditation state and actually imagine like kind of black, oozy, horrible stuff coming out of my skin and like letting it go. So I do all sorts of really simple exercises that I've taught for me. And what I would say is, you know, listen for the similarities, not the differences, because some people listening will be like, oh that's really cool. I'm gonna try that. Other people will be like, oh my God, she's so wacky. That's so out there. So I'm just like, I love dipping in and out of different modalities and continuously seeking and learning and expanding. And I think that's important. I mean, I would say I'm pretty spiritual. I'm not necessarily religious, but if a friend says, come to a church service, I'm like, yeah, I'm there. Like I just challenge myself and push myself and become a little bit counterintuitively purposely out of my comfort zone on a daily basis, just to keep learning. What are my triggers? What supports me? What are the tools that I can dip into? What makes me feel good when things are really off kilter I'm feeling discombobulated? Because it it happens, you know, often.
1: So the 15-year-old girl who got picked up on the chair and taken outside to the green carpet in guitar lessons would have been called non-compliant and naughty. You actually had what's called appreciative inquiry, which is one of the underpinnings for an entrepreneur, right? You build something. How different is your business now than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago? Totally different business model. So that ability to unpick stuff. Why? The curiosity, like my nine-year-old son, why? Sometimes I just go, Archie, stop asking why, but I want to encourage it because I think that curiosity in you has led to where you are now, has led to that exploration and the good and the bad times. The second thing I wanted to say to you, just closing out on that, before we talk about the four Ps, because I know you like your (laughs) little. <laughs> I want to commend you and I want to thank you publicly for being one of the first people way before Brene Brown made it cool. I saw you get up on stage. You and I spoke at an event that Gary Burt Whistle put on, um, Day of Inspiration. Do you remember? Yeah. <laughs> and you got up on stage. And so this was way before vulnerability was even a conversation in the boardroom. I think it's overdone now for not the right reasons, because you have some people going, I'm going to be vulnerable. So I connect with hearts and minds. And I know you be vulnerable and you show vulnerability. You stood up on that stage. This is eight or nine years ago. And you spoke about sobriety. And you spoke about, I think you said, your crazy monkey mind. And you spoke about the highs and lows. And I was sitting there and first of all, Lisa, I just went, oh my God, I can't believe she's saying this. Like, no one says that. It challenged me. And then it was like, oh, people don't want the facade. So I saw how you connected with the audience and you connected with yourself. So I wanted to thank you. Long before Brené Brown made vulnerability the corporate lexicon, you were being vulnerable. Is that something you consciously chose? Did that just happen that day?
0: Gosh, thank you. I just got shivers because you know how I feel. About you, I think you're one of the greatest speakers I've ever seen. So I just went into like this whole oh gosh, did I even speak on the same stage as you back then? Wow, <laughs> thank you. Um, the vulnerability piece, do you know? I it was never purposeful, and it was never really purpose for me to put myself out there so much. I can talk about AA. I mean, see, this is a vulnerable thing. Still people are like, AA, you went to AA. I mean, when I gave up drinking 16 years ago, I went to AA every single day for probably nearly a year. And as part of that process, you have to stand up and tell what was the change and what it's like now. And it used to kill me, like just to stand up there and talk about the fear, remorse, grief, loathing, like everything that I felt about myself. It was excruciating, but I found so much liberation and freedom in that. And also in those rooms, I just found that there were actors and businessmen and, you know, people living on the street and there was every walk of life and everyone from every part of society and it was a great normalizer, and it was extraordinarily grounding and humbling. And I think I probably took that and the power of that which was not talked about and started thinking, wow, as I got more and more well and sober and I realized that other people would come into those rooms who were just at the beginning of their journey and so that gave me the impetus to tell my story and so probably I realized, you know, the power that was having and how much that was helping other people and how people had helped me at the beginning of my journey and maybe because of that I started sharing more openly and vulnerably in the real world and what I realized is, and this is the kicker of the whole thing and this is what I think so many people don't get, when you're vulnerable and open and authentic and real, there's nothing that can keep you small or afraid or in fear because everything's out there, right? So it's actually in and of itself extraordinarily liberating. And so whilst it may to some seem like selfless and brave that I'm doing that, it actually means that I can live a really kind of relatively easy life because there's nothing in the closet. You know, There's not going to be any shocks if someone suddenly says, oh, I heard you gave up drinking and you went to AA. I'm like, yeah, cool. So pretty much everything in my life is out there. And so the vulnerability piece actually makes it a much cleaner way to live.
1: Do you think before that you were acting? So I mean that metaphorically, you said you're with actors and business people and everything else. And do you think a lot of us, a lot of people listening to this are acting as well, pretending we've got our shit together when we don't?
0: Oh, I was always acting. My God. Like if you have looked from the outside in and would I have met you when I was still drinking probably just after-
1: I met you, I think the publishing we did – This I didn't realise we're going to go down memory lane. I just thought I'd say you were born in cooler and I'm from Dubbo. Let's get on with it, messenger. I finished working with the Aussie cricket team in 2005, 2006, and then self published 2006, 2007.
0: Yeah. So, uh, no, so I'd given up drinking that. But no, before then, most definitely from the outside in, I mean, I started my first business 2001. So for three years, you know, I ran what people would deem a successful, small, very small business at the time. From the outside in everything, and this is many people, my life looked really squeaky clean. You know, I was fun. I was outgoing. I was, you know, relatively successful. I was, you know, a high achiever, but underneath I was absolutely dying, you know, and it's very, very exhausting and difficult to keep up that facade when you're kind of, here I am presenting one thing, wearing a mask and going home and feeling like inadequate, lack of self-worth, like, you know, feelings of loathing, like everything else that goes with it. And so, no, it's excruciating and still, To this day, you know, there are times, absolutely, when my ego takes over and kicks in and it's like, you know, I'm this, I'm this, and it's bravado. And again, I'm wearing a mask and I try to have awareness around that and strip that back very quickly. But sure, I still go into that sometimes. Absolutely.
1: Deeper question on this, and you can answer this however you feel right on the spot. How do you define success now?
0: Freedom and choice. Success for me is freedom and choice. I could not care less about money for money's sake in and of itself. It's extraordinarily important, you know, to buy freedom and choice. And also, um, you know, I wrote a whole book about this money and mindfulness around the pendulation between, you know, doing good in the world and making profit don't need to be mutually exclusive. So, you know, for years I had. a problem with money. I thought money was a dirty word and then I became very, very comfortable with it. And uh, yeah, success for me is being able to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, you know, and loving what I get to do, what I choose consciously to do for work on a daily basis is really, really important to me now. You know, I think when times come where, you know, it's You become financially dependent or you're um, feeling like everything's falling out from underneath you and you don't have control. That's for me when I feel like I'm walking through mud. So I've been very conscious around, you know, getting everything in line so that I can consciously live a life that I want. That's success.
1: You were very purposeful in that answer. You've thought about that. You have obviously been asked that before, but you're not that articulate unless you've worked out that clarity. And I think to segue and change gears a little bit into what can we give some small business owners, some practical tips, I think, bang, there's so many takeouts with you. And we're only just getting started. But understand what is success, because for so many people, if it's the Western definition of success, power, money, kudos, you often get that and go, hey, there's no pleasure, meaning and purpose. It's the difference Todd Kashtan, not Kardashian, Kashdan, a leading psychologist, talks about the good life, pleasure, meaning purpose, and the goods, life, money, power, kudos. I think you can have both, but your definition really is around meaning. It's around pleasure. It's around purpose. And what a great way to segue into the four Ps because I'm thinking some small business owners might be going, yeah, look, I've got a coffee cart or I've got a dog grooming salon or I've got a pizza shop, Mario's Pizza Shop down the road from us in Cremorne. Big shout out to Mario and and the gang there as well. But the four P's, which you do, and a lot of small business owners probably think, oh, what can I do around this? I want to dig down and just you know, cover these four P's. So number one is purpose. The second one is developing a platform. You've got a love-hate relationship with it, but let's talk about how to develop it. Then the next one, publishing. I think everyone has a book in them. You told me this many years ago and I was sort of arming and ahhing and all this self-esteem. What will my mates from Dubbo say when I write a book? I said that to you. and You said, Andy, get over yourself and tell them to get over it. (laughs) (laughs) And the fourth one was podcasting. So let's do it in that order. First of all, talk to me about purpose. Then we'll talk platforms. Then we'll talk publishing. Then we'll talk podcasting. And I don't like even numbers. So can then you add The fifth P for me.
0: Oh, yeah. We'll add one in as we go. But I'm also going to say this just because I know we've kind of gone from a lot of the, you know, mental health, spiritual stuff. Also, disarm me if you think at any point because, you know, it's a really important point. As speakers, writers, I think we do learn a little bit, you know, to answer things in a certain way. So if at any point throughout this conversation you go, nah, that's just you're giving me your normal thing." push me harder because I will answer as authentically as I can. And I think I did with the last one, but yeah, just keep pushing and pushing. Like let's get whatever is in there.
1: (laughs) Thank you. But You did. And that's why I asked you the question on stage. And I could see you shift. And I could see the emotion in you on that. And I could see you look up. So if you look at the NLP stuff, you went back to that. You're doing everything and more and more. (laughs) You never just give bites. But if I do hear something that I think is canned, I'll just sound an alarm or the wizard with me here will sound an alarm.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Good. Okay. And leave that in. It's really important, all this stuff. Okay, let's go into the business stuff. Where do you want to start? Purpose. Yeah.
1: I've read all this stuff, Lisa Messenger. Everyone says I need to have a purpose, blah, 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 blah. Where do you start?
0: Yeah. So I wrote a book in 2017 called Purpose and (laughs) it sounds like such an arrogant topic to write about, but you know me well by now that most people are the guru of something and then write a book. I actually do it completely the opposite way. I decide on a topic and then I go through this whole journey of self-exploration and I write in real time as I'm working out, you know, the answers. And that's how I write. And that's why I love to do it. And that's why I've written so many books. I believe in 2013, for the first time really in my life, I truly stepped into my purpose. So that took me as a small business owner, 11 years (laughs) from 2001 to 2013, 11, 12 years Of kind of over servicing, undercharging, being everything to everyone, still trying to work out who I was. And my purpose came when I surrendered. And I'm going to talk about this in small business terms. It's almost like I kind of was like, by 2012, I was making. Good money. I had a very profitable business. I only had three staff. I couldn't work out how to scale and I was comfortable. And I was quite frankly a little bit bored. It was like going through the motions. And so for me, I kind of got to a point where I was like, I'm just going to surrender. And I asked, this is the spiritual part of me, I was like, okay, I am ready for something big, whatever it is. If my purpose is cleaning toilets in India, then give it to me and I will do it with every part of dedication. And It just like literally dropped in overnight when I got really just like, okay, I'm ready for something bigger. And my purpose became, you know, I was just like, wow, I've been an entrepreneur for such a long time. I'm surrounded by so many extraordinary thought leaders, you know, game changers. Why don't I, rather than do like... out these one-dimensional books dealing with one person at a time, why don't I bring them all together into the format of a magazine? And really my purpose there was I want to tell extraordinary stories and share the voices of amazing people and tell the story behind the story and the raw and the real and the vulnerable and the authentic, because so much of what was happening in the world at the time and still is to a degree was you just hear the surface level stuff. Why is Andy amazing? Well, this is why, you know, and you don't dig as you are now. And I wanted that to then, you know, inspire and educate other people. So what's important about purpose is that I would say for me, it's three words, igniting human potential, And then if I unpack or purpose as opposed to the business one, it's to be an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs, living my life out loud, showing that anything's possible. That is as simple or as complex as my purpose gets and we'll talk later about platform. But from there, when I have that, It becomes around a feeling as opposed to a delivery mechanism. So it actually doesn't matter if I'm writing a book or doing a podcast or a speaking gig or a number of other things.
1: Feeling rather than a delivery mechanism. Explain.
0: Yes. Great. Thank you. Because now I want to get to four people. And I talk a lot to corporates about this and to small businesses. So I think so many people, when they start a business, they think, what have I got in front of me? A coffee cup. They're like, oh, I'm going to develop a coffee cup. But then it becomes about the product as opposed to the feeling. And the problem is if everyone suddenly decides, well, actually, I'm not going to drink out of a coffee cup because the new cool thing is this, then you no longer have a business. But if it's about a feeling, I want to develop an extraordinary drinking vessel, or I want people to feel this, then suddenly you're able to morph, pivot, iterate, change, and it becomes less about the product. So we can dig Down into this about future proofing your business and what I've done as a result of COVID and being able to, you know, pendulate between platforms. But in terms of finding purpose, I would say there's essentially three things. Firstly, feel into what it is that excites you, juices you up, makes you want to jump out of bed every morning. You know, that feeling you're just like, oh my gosh, I just love this. Like, what is that? And really, I would encourage anyone to just feel into that. It might be the wackiest thing. You might be like, oh my gosh, that happens when blah, and it's unexpected, but feel into that play with it. Do what I call is an idea soup, write everything down. These are all the things I love and then start to go, wow, there's a whole lot there. The second thing is start to listen to that External validation for a while. Like when people are like, oh my gosh, Andy, you just bring so much energy. You're such a great speaker. You're really buffed and motivated. Like whatever the thing is you
1: hear. Are you reading that text message I sent you and said when we get to purpose point two reading? <laughs> I'm blushing. Keep going, stop it.
0: So you start listening and You'll start to hear these things, you know, oh, you're a great connector, you're a this, and you go, huh, maybe there's something in that. So what juices me out? What are other people saying? And then the third thing is when it comes to business, where's a gap in the market or where is there some potential commercial reality. Cause that's like really important, right? Cause we can have something that juices us up, makes us feel like we're alive, but maybe it's a great hobby. Maybe it's not our vocation, you know, but I think when you start to meld those three things together, then actually it gets pretty exciting.
1: Love it. And there's a good three-step process as well. And we'll put on show notes, where people can find your many books. Now, when I interview someone, and the wizard knows this, if they've written a book, I bring it in. When they've written 26 books and helped self-publish 400, I need a truck to back up. So we're going to put the show notes up to allow those links for everyone. Question on purpose for you. Give me an example in the last three to six months, when you have lived on purpose, specific to business, something you've said yes to, something you've said no to.
0: It's a great question. So I probably say no to a lot more things than I say yes to and so this is where I think it's really good and it takes a long time to get to this but I just my litmus test every morning is is this helping me to be an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs living my life out loud, showing anything's possible or does it ignite human potential so what happens is as you become bigger and step more into your purpose or you become more public or whatever the thing is more and more opportunities come your way and so you know, people will come to me and be like, let's start a fashion label together, or let's, I nearly started a dog brand recently, right? So as an entrepreneur or a business person, an innovator, a big thinker, my immediate reaction is, yes, let's do it. I want to say yes to everything, right? So I need to catch myself and I go quick litmus test, does that ignite?
1: So so dog brand? Does that, you love dogs, you've got a beautiful dog. So did you run the litmus test over that?
0: I did, but to be honest, and we can talk about that, it took me a $55,000 to say no to that one. Like I literally spent $55,000 on going down a track of developing that. That was a longer a longer no than yes. And then suddenly I was like, what am I doing? I don't want to do this. It's got nothing to do with me. I mean, that was a slow burn and that was for a few different reasons. But more often than not, it's just a quick no, no, thank you. And actually I've just written an entire chapter for a new book on the art of saying no, so I can give you a whole lot of ways to say no and a whole lot of ways to say yes but or no but. So anyway, we can come to that. In terms of the yeses, um, I Try to feel into things and go, is this serving my purpose? Is this making me feel good and alive? Is this serving my community? And if so, and does it have some commercial reality, then it's a hell yes, you know, but we only have so many hours in the day and it's very easy as we started off talking about to be Put in a lot of different directions. There are a lot of energy vampires, energy sappers out there. Two of the words I use the most are uh, value exchange, you know, what's in it for you, what's in it for me, is it going to work? And that can be an energetic exchange, a monetary exchange, a time exchange. It can be a number of different things. I'm very big on collaborations. But um, you'll know, you know, it's again, I call it a flow state as opposed to walking through mud. I think when you say yes and it's meant to be, it's just the synchronicity and the serendipity, it just kind of works. You know, these things start happening and you're like, whoa, wow, this is great. Even when it's hard, it's kind of a path of least resistance. It just kind of works. Whereas I know when I say yes to something and it's hard, sometimes it's better to, you know, suck up your pride, ego, whatever it is, and actually turn around and say, you know what, this isn't feeling right for me. This is actually Difficult and it's blocking energy about where, you know, that I should be spending
1: elsewhere. And so important as you build your platform, the next P, and you get more exposure to people, you're going to get asked more and more and more. So I think having that clearly articulated purpose, and I do that myself, Lisa, is, is this living on my purpose? Is this going to help what I'm doing and my business and my colleagues and my family? And then pretty quickly you get that clear delineation yeah, it's going to be additive to this or it's actually going to take energy away. So on platforms, Can you talk to me about platforms on three levels? The first is someone who's listening to this who does not have a digital presence. They're just starting. What should they do? What are the two or three things? Talking to someone mid-range, they've had a website, they may have set it up five years ago, they paid a developer $15,000, wasn't on WordPress, you couldn't get in back-end, and every time you wanted to upload something, it cost you $1,000. So you're someone who needs to make that shift. And then someone like you, if you had someone listening to this who's got a big social media presence, what can they do to go to the next level? So you're happy with that? Starting out mid-range and then super advanced. What's next? How can you fire it up?
0: Yeah, really happy. And yeah, so it all goes back to purpose and it goes back to leverage as well. So and through Covid we've seen this a lot and I've spoken to a lot of people who, you know, have traditional bricks and mortar businesses and have no digital footprint and that becomes, you know, tricky in and of itself because already you're dealing with potential cash flow issues and you know, uh, supply chain issues, and there's all sorts of other things going on. And then suddenly thrown into the mix, you're like, oh my gosh, I have to learn about new technology so I can digitize my offering. I need to get on social media. You might need to set up a website, set set up Shopify, and that can become, you know, quite overwhelming. So yeah, if you're just starting out, I think it's important to try and have some kind of digital presence, but again, try and focus. So try and, think about what are you trying to achieve? What's the end result you're going for? And what's the fastest way to market? So is it that, you know, Instagram is going to work best for you? We could unpack this for days.
1: <laughs> so out of all of your books, because it's like we could talk for hours and we need to get you back again. And We'll get into this stuff deeper. But out of all your books, have you got something that will help someone who is just starting?
0: Yes, I do. So it's called The The Ultimate Guide to Social Media Marketing. It's a journal which I've put out, which has got every single thing in there about social media and digital marketing. Because it's really, really important. Yeah, so when you're starting out, I think, you know, really important to have some kind of online presence. The fastest way to grow that is to find some people to collaborate with, whether they're corporates or influencers. And I'll just, I will unpack it a little bit because it is important. So I always go like this. If you go through the alphabet, I did this with you when we were writing your book, you know, airlines, automotive, just think about the different industries that could align with you. And then literally just pick three potential partners because here's the thing. When I launched my magazine, that was a small business. I had three staff. I knew nothing about magazines. I was entering an industry that was highly saturated. People said print was dead or dying and I really didn't have a lot of money behind me. So everything was stacked against me. What I did was... Rather than think about just monetary partnerships, I actually thought about who are like-minded, non-competing partners. So Xero, so the software, was one of my partners back then because they had a database, I think, of something like 800,000 small businesses, right? So anyone starting out can think about this. Again, value exchange. What can I offer zero? Hey, zero, can I write you some blogs for free or can I do whatever for free? In exchange, can you help amplify my small business and let your audience know about me? So that's a really simple way to do it. Just really believe in yourself and then think about who can I partner with who can help to amplify my brand digitally rather than thinking about, oh my gosh, I've got to build my own website, my own Instagram following. Just think about who can I tap into, what can I offer them and what can they offer me? That's simple.
1: Love that because I think a lot of people get scared or they look at Instagram and go, you know. Sarah and Jess and Mike have 1 million followers. I've got to get everything on Instagram. But what you're saying is, no, 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 before you do that, who are the like-minded people? Love it. Zero, great company. We had Trent Innes on this podcast, the CEO of Zero. What a fantastic company. You can see why they are one of the leading fintechs in Asia Pacific. So they were a really good one to align yourself to back then.
0: And I love Trent and he's been such a supporter for such a long time. So I think things like that as a real startup, because the thing is, I think we think we need to do everything ourselves. And actually, if you can just think what's the quickest way to market, and you'll just give another example There, some time ago, I dealt with someone who said my target market is general practitioners and I said, doctors, and I said, oh, great. How are you going to get to them? And they went, well, I'm going to you know, call every single one or connect with every single one Individually, and I just said, No, surely there's the General Practitioners Association of Australia. So try and go one point, have a great relationship with them, and let that one point do the work for you. And this is where I think, you know, again, coming back to money in and of itself isn't the only currency. If you can actually believe in yourself enough and have a good enough offering, and that doesn't matter if you're a candle maker or you know, the pizza joint or whatever it is, if you can get someone else to believe in you and amplify your message. It's really, really important. Hi, we hope you've been enjoying this podcast so far. Don't forget that we have plenty more podcasts and content just like this on NAB Business Fit. Go to www.nab.com.au forward slash business fit for more content to support your physical and psychological wellbeing and to help you take care of business. Do you want me to give a few examples quickly about digitization for slightly larger bricks and mortar businesses or how are we going for time?
1: Yeah, I think you've, well, I've got as long as you have. So uh, <laughs> this might be the world's longest podcast. You've got so much amazing content. I think you've really covered base entry and it's not about going to the platform. That's been a real learning for me, Liz, is who do you know? I remember you doing that with me going, I oh, would have made you But what are you doing? You did it on your whiteboard in Surrey Hills. So you're leveraging the people you know and then you're using that to go on their networks rather than coming up with your own. Because a lot of people are, how do I find other people that can create so much stream? I think you've done the mid-range but give us a couple of more tips on what people can do in the mid-range and then I'm actually going to ask you to pull out your mobile phone.
0: Okay so I'll just give you a few I mean we could actually do an entire podcast easily on marketing or any of these aspects and I'm happy to come back and do any of that if it's helpful. We're here. <laughs> no but seriously, so. I'll just give a couple of quick examples. So I recently spoke to Pippa Hallis, who's the CEO of Ella Bache. So bigger business, she's got 150 franchisees. They were traditionally pre-COVID. You go into the salon, you have a facial. So essentially she's running 150 small businesses. Suddenly overnight, 10 hours, it took for the government to say, you cannot go into studio or you can't go into a salon anymore. So they had to work out how do you digitize an entire you know, 150 small businesses overnight that are completely reliant on, you know, bricks and mortar and an in-salon experience. How do you do a facial at home? So they very quickly pivoted and actually started equipping their teams to, okay, teach people using digital tools. This is how you do your own facial, selling products through their, you know, e-commerce platforms. So the most important thing there is about continuing to communicate. Don't, you know, dive under a rock and go, it's all too hard, find ways to actually communicate whether it's just a basic EDM whether it's on Instagram whether it's you know LinkedIn whether it's creating a podcast to start talking to them i think humanizing things and just again this vulnerability piece just asking people hey this is what's happening we're here for you. How do you want to hear from us? How can we keep supporting you? And I think that's really in 2020, that's been the silver lining is people who've been able to digitise and think differently and innovate and actually talk to their community about what they want. I think they're really leading the pack. It's pretty extraordinary to watch.
1: So really the thread through all this is, don't get obsessed about the platform. Because when we know some people have thousands of followers, but they're not doing any business, they can buy likes or they have the wrong market. But you'll say, no, 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 no. The platform will come. Who do you know? Leverage that. Use your connections. Love it. Because I'm sure people listening to this, it's a bit of a flip because you sometimes go to a social media course. you got to get on LinkedIn, get on Twitter, get on this, get on this. So people get anxious, Lisa, about content, 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 I'm even thinking with what we do, I can do that better with myself, especially with this program. We're starting to have conversations with other big corporates who've got partnerships and small business owners. So how do we help them rather than just blasting our own channel? So love that. Can you pull out your mobile phone for me?
0: Yes. I feel like, I don't know if you want to ask, you. I don't want to look at that. It's very busy. (laughs) I can also talk a little bit about my platform and how I leverage between print, digital and events, if you want. But yes, the mobile phone is out and it's a little bit hectic, I got to say.
1: I think this question is going to lead into that. So it might be a nice segue. Can you just do a search on your phone and type in these following names? Can you type in Richard Branson?
0: (laughs) <laughs> I cannot yes, yes.
1: <laughs> Can you type in Natalie Bassingthwaite? Can you type in Megan Gale? Can you type in Lewis Howes, one of the all-time leading podcasters? And you are on his show and he's been on your show. Can you type in Bradley Trevor Grieve? I think Bradley or BTG as you effectively call him, has sold over 20 million books. The voice of Nemo. Can you type in Gabby Byrne? The list goes on. So the question I've got for you, these are all your friends. These are all people you hang out with.
0: They're all in there. So let's hope they don't lose this bad boy. <laughs> and
1: I, I'm sure there's a whole lot more, right? So when you get to a level like you are, how do you leverage people like this? And I think there's a learning in this for other people. oh, If they've got a book or they've got a product launch or something, because a lot of well-known people get lots of people contact them and they normally say no. How have you built up that network? And then we'll get on to how you've done digital and everything else around it.
0: So I'm going to use this Richard Branson story, because I think it really demonstrates this well, people, and I could demonstrate it in a million different ways, people are really, really busy, right? So again, I've talked about this through our chat, value exchange. And business is a dance. At the beginning, it's about much more about what's in it for them. You know, like stack it, give them 200 things for the one thing that you're asking. So the reason that I have such a strong relationship with Richard Branson now is this. I was invited to go to Necker Island in November, 2014. So a long time before anyone kind of much went there and it was extraordinary. And I can talk about all of that. But what's important about that is I'd never met Richard at the time. There was 28 entrepreneurs that got invited to go and we all got an opportunity for 10 minutes to pitch to Rich. And I watched, and this is a very good example of what I've seen play out in life over and over and over again. I watched as 27 people essentially asked him things that were impossible for him to say yes to. They said things like, hey, I'm Andy and I've got this incredible podcast, you know, can I rename it Virgin, whatever, 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 right? He can't say yes. He's never met you. He's never listened to your podcast. There's over 400 Virgin companies. Most of them are licensing deals Every single thing I watched was impossible for him to say yes to. So I thought on the spot, because I'd over-engineered it before I got there, oh, my God, I'm going to pitch something really big. You know what I did? I just said, hey, Richard, can I send you a box of my magazine every month? That's it. finish. So, of course, he goes, yes, of course you can. Now, I'm not stupid. I know the likes of Beyonce and everyone else who turn up to Necker, right? But I also know that all of his staff and Richard would be seeing that magazine come every single month. So I, from there, built a really good relationship with his PA, Helen, who's been with him for years. We're great friends. And I said, hey, Helen, would Richard consider writing me a testimonial for the front cover of my book, Life and Love, which I'd finished writing on NECA? And so she's like, of course. Anyway, so I kept saying, how can I help Richard in Australia? You know, what can I do for him genuinely rather than... <laughs> and then... Um, I knew he was coming to Australia the next year and I said, oh, so I emailed Helen and I said, oh, hey, you know, could I shoot Richard for a cover of my magazine? And she goes, "Um, yeah, great. She goes, oh, actually, by the way, would you consider co-chairing the Virgin Way conference with Richard? (laughs) So there I am on stage with Richard. You know, I'd read his book 20 years before or something, you know, it took a long time and a lot of me doing things for him. And then we did that and we were meant to shoot the cover for the magazine in the Botanic Gardens afterwards. And then they were like, oh, he's kind of busy. He's going to go to Make Peace Island, his island on the Noosa River um, in Queensland for the weekend. Hey, do you want to come up there for the weekend with him and shoot the cover? And it was really there that I became, you know, friends with him because I was there with just some of his close family members. But the thing is, make it easy to say yes. And having owned a magazine and, you know, global media for quite a while now, We've done over 6,000 stories, and every single day people pitch 99% of pitches would be look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. If someone comes to me and says, hey, I think this would be really useful for your community I feel like it would sit into this section really well and what can I do for you oh my god I'm like you're in every single time it's a yes but so few people make it easy for us to say yes you know so I think for me it's all about relationships it's all about thinking about that person more don't underestimate the power of handwritten notes you know in a digital economy you know notice what people are doing send them a note hey wow I just saw you got a promotion or wow done on your latest book you know acknowledge people and you know it's like a favors bag do a million favors for them and ask for one thing in return you know people notice that kind of thing
1: do you know you are the fourth or fifth person on this podcast out of 14 or 15 episodes who's mentioned old world values like writing a handwritten note in a new world digital medium so just sort of unpack what you've done and then we have got to get on to publishing the next piece we're going to come back. It's not the platform itself. It's how you get your message clear, aligned to your purpose, connect with people, value exchange, build that relationship. And from little things, one of my favorite songs is Paul Kelly, the Australian artist. From little things, big things grow. Pitch to Rich, here's a box of magazines. It sounds like he was a bit dumbfounded in a nice way. Here's this you know, vibrant, sassy woman who hasn't pitched him. Rich, I'll just give you some magazines and. Bang, it's gone to a big relationship opening up doors for you all around the world. Very clever.
0: Simplicity, you know. I really think I'm still astounded by the amount of people who like still, even though I don't have the print magazine at the moment and watch this space, but, you know, still on a daily basis, people are like, hey, can you do this for me? And I'm like, whoa, 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 I, I never heard of you. I don't, but make it easy for me, you know. People don't make it easy for you to say yes. We want to say yes. (laughs)
1: Let's make it easy for people to understand a little bit more about publishing. I'm going to divide this into two. There's a question I want to ask you about Collective Hub that I haven't had the opportunity to ask, and you said to ask anything, so we're going to get to that. First of all, why should everybody write a book? Words you said to me back in 2006, it would have been 2007. Why should everyone write a book?
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Now it's funny, my fiance, Stephen, like every day, he's like, why do you say that? There's enough ridiculous books in the world. But the reason is this, I think, you know, back then I would say, don't think $30 book, think $30,000 client. You know, a book is an extraordinary you know way to connect with people to put your messaging out there you know but you really need to look at is it a legacy piece is it to inspire is it you know to there's a whole lot of reasons for writing a book i mean i have completely fallen in love with the process for me i find it very cathartic i'm like whatever i'm going through i'm like ah oh, it becomes gamified for me like when i broke my office so after 17 years of bricks and mortar i decentralized my office in april 2018 before everyone had to work from home. And uh, that was at the time a brave and courageous thing to do. So I thought, okay, I'm going to write a book called Work From Wherever. And so it almost gave me an opportunity to go, okay, I'm going to make this work for myself. And as I do it, I'm going to teach other people along the way. My previous book was called Risk and Resilience when I nearly lost everything. You know, I grew too fast. I didn't have the right systems and processes in place. I was a great, you know.
1: Can I just say working from home or work from home in 2019? before COVID hit, like, did you have some knowledge that we didn't?
0: Well, well, finally enough, risk and resilience and work from wherever since COVID have become like off the charts bestsellers.
1: Pretty good IP to have before the world grows four ceramic clogs, borders closed, everything closes and we're working from home. So look, well, it just shows if you do the hard work and you're in the right place, opportunities abound, right? So it was interesting, Cara, our producer, when she spoke to you and she said, how many books have you? Written? And you went, oh, I don't know, it's 20 something. So she had to do the research. I can tell you, you've written 26, when you have to tell someone you're interviewing how many books they've written, they've written a lot. But here's (laughs) something else I know your first 10 books did okay, not great.
0: Probably the first 18 no one really read.
1: (laughs) Question for you, Luis. Most people would write a book. It's hard. Like books are bloody hard, rewarding, but it's hard. You know, you start, woohoo, and then you get away and write wherever you are. And then the work starts. And a lot of people tap out early. So 18 books. And if it was that hard, And you told me about English and, you know, maybe there was a bit of a chip there. In psychology we call that drive, you know, stuff you all. I'm going to prove this. But why did you just keep going? What was the burning desire just to write it? Like you love it, get it. It's aligned to your purpose, get it. But to write that many books until it really takes off, you're either a masochist or there's something I don't know.
0: So, I mean, here's some of the ones I wrote that no one ever much read. So when I learnt to surf, 12, probably about the same time I published your book, I decided, oh, there's no books out there. So I'll like, again, learn to surf and I will write a book on it as I go. So then I contacted Lane Beachley and Barton Lynch and they helped me. For me, I think it's been an extraordinary exploration into different subjects. And so it's almost like, I love the process because I throw myself into learning something that actually I don't know a lot about. And as I'm learning, I write about it, right? So, what I write is very much from a self deprecating this is where I started. I had no idea how to do this, like any subject. This is what I learned. And here are the lessons. I'm going to share them with you. So, for me, I love it because aligned with my purpose, you know, the part of living my life out loud, it keeps me exploring. It keeps me fresh. It keeps me whenever I get, you know, a little bit bored or whatever. It's like I'm always seeking. So that's a beautiful piece. The second piece now that people actually do read them (laughs) is that people, what I get all the time is people say all the time every day across every platform, oh my God, I feel like you're me. And the beautiful thing about that is because I write, and there's nothing off limits at all, like whether it's financial stuff I'm going through, you know, any hardships, anything else. And I tell it exactly like it is as I'm going through it. People are like, oh my gosh, it's so relatable and it becomes attainable. And so now I get So much joy in the process, but also in seeing the impact that it is having on so many people because I'm just telling it how it is. So I just love the process. Why I did so many before it really actually worked, I don't know. (laughs)
1: Well, it gave you an absolute foundation to write a book on resilience and to come from the heart and be authentic. Now we're doing a podcast, but we're also doing a video cast we're using Zoom. You've got a background. It looks like an office, but I know you have not got the same model, which we're going to get to as well. Do you mind if we go unplug? Can you turn off your background for a moment?
0: Yeah, let's unplug. So by the way, the office behind me was my last physical bricks and mortar office, 600 square meters penthouse in Surrey Hills cost me over 350 grand a year. So I like that I have the background now that I no longer pay rent <laughs> and I still get to use it. So it's a little bit of tongue in cheek right there, but this is my- um, So
1: that Zoom backdrop is saving you 350 grand a year. There's a lot, of, a lot of ways you can channel that money.
0: Oh, and if we want to dig into, you know, Productivity and efficiencies. Since I've actually decentralized everything, we can go there as well. And um, this is my third bedroom in Bondi, so it's uh that is my brain on a plate. That's my beautiful outdoor nature outside. So that's me.
1: <laughs> so if anyone listening, you've got to go to the video cast of this and look. Like, it's visual, beautiful. It's like a backstage pass behind the scenes. <laughs> so what is behind the scenes? It's it's a pinboard. Is this the next book?
0: So I'm also, you know, however successful you are in life, there are really inexpensive ways to do things. So behind me are six boards. They're essentially soundproofing material from Bunnings, 30 bucks each. And then it is literally a whole lot of my existing books and some inspiration torn out. And it's just covered in a big wall. You can jump onto my Instagram, Lisa Messenger, and there's a a way that we made that. But yeah, in front of me, I have Besser blocks from Bunnings, three bucks each and a little desktop. So there's really, you know, fun, inexpensive hacks that you can do to create a home office.
1: Oh, Lisa, I can't start a podcasting studio. I can't write a book because I don't have the platform and I don't have the money. Go to Bunnings. Get a sausage sanger and some onions and tomato sauce. That's all you get, right? They've tried to change it in some areas in Bunnings. They said, no, you have white bread, sausage, tomato sauce, onion. That's it. But make it simple. That's one of the things I'm loving about unpicking today with you, Lisa you're not over complicating stuff. And despite the success you've had, you've got a Bunnings board and some better blocks. Love it. Are you sponsored by Bunnings? Are we getting a no, hashtag Bunnings? On I this? have
0: never, no, I have never had any monetary partnership with Bunnings, but if they're listening, send them some my way. <laughs> and Andy, yeah, you know, I think it's really important because um, coming back to success, success for me isn't better, brighter, more beautiful things, you know, actually the creativity in my office and the simplicity of it and going into Bunnings myself with a friend and, you know, getting creative is so much more fun for me than going and spending a couple of grand on something flash. Like sometimes it's in the process of doing something. And sometimes it's, you know, having small budgets. In fact, when I've run workshops and things for corporates, (laughs) much to their shock, sometimes I've said, okay, you have no money. Pretend you have absolutely zero dollars and they all kind of go, oh my God, oh my God, but I have all these campaigns planned across all these different mediums and all these platforms and how are we possibly, but when you strip it back and you make people think about how can I do more with less and how can I start being creative and innovative, that's when it gets exciting, you know?
1: I've got one more question on publishing and for those people who want to find out about what was the inspiration and it was an amazing story, Google Lisa Messenger plus publishing or collective hub, it's a wonderful story, but I want to go to the end of that story with permission to ask a raw question. Anytime. 37 countries. I caught up with you at KPMG a couple of years ago. I think you just caught up with a mutual buddy of ours, Andy Lark, creative, crazy, off the charts, creative guy. And at that stage, you were talking about looking at selling. There was a bit of interest. Why did you stop? I've been wanting to ask you this, amazing success. Yeah. Why did it stop?
0: Really important question. Thank you. So, people say to me, What's the most courageous thing you've ever done? And it's twofold. One is having the courage to start Collective Hub, you know, highly saturated industry, blah, 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 all the stuff I said. But also having the courage in equal measure to break it at its peak in 2018. And the reason is this I started saying before, I'm a great founder, like I'm a brilliant founder, I'm a great innovator. Great at seeing things before it exists. Great problem solver comes from asking why. I see, you know, solutions everywhere. You know, there are many things I'm great at. I'm actually not a great CEO and I am terrible at detail and operationally when it comes to, you know, finance, I love now. I'm very, very intimate with my data. I think as a creative, it is the single most important thing in a business pretty much. But it doesn't come naturally. And, you know, technology, HR, IT, legal, can't stand. Risk,
1: compliance. Yeah.
0: So I go from three staff. Within 18 months, I've got 34 full-time staff, which isn't a lot, but as a small business owner, it's relative, $3.5 million in fixed salaries. Only three of the 34 staff were writers or a commissioning editor. All of the rest of my team were freelance. And so we were very heavy and we grew too quickly and I didn't have the right systems and processes in place to support that growth. And let this be a a word of warning to people, bigger isn't always better. You know, I think as small business owners, we always dream, we want to have this big thing. So from a brand perspective, suddenly, you know, I get this email from Anna Wintour in New York one day, about 18 months in.
1: Anna Wintour is the devil wears Prada, Anna, (laughs) made famous... Through more famous for that movie.
0: She's pretty much the doyen of publishing globally. I mean, I thought it was a joke. Anna Winter would like to meet with you in New York. I flew to New York. Like, Collective Hub was on the radar of a lot. So
1: you went to New York. You met with Anna.
0: Yes. Oh, we should unpack that as well. But my point around this is I was the only person in Australia to have Jamie Oliver on the cover. You know, I met with him. Richard Branson and I became great friends. John Cleese and I sat down. Like, I had this little black book of everything. And Collective Hub, everyone was talking about. So the brand... Was extraordinary and growing. I was the problem. I hadn't set up the right infrastructure, systems, processes, and operationally. And so we were hemorrhaging cash. I was spending money on the wrong things. I took my eye off the ball in terms of data, had the wrong kind of measurements in place. And so I decided to break the very thing that I started because sometimes that's the most courageous thing to do, particularly as. And this comes back to purpose. You know, what's my purpose? To ignite human potential. Can I do that when I'm lying on the bathroom floor crying every single night going, how am I going to make this? I would turn up to work every day. My CFO, my chief financial officer would say every day, we need another hundred grand. And I was like, what? And I'm just dialing for dollars. And when you're in that mud state, not state of flow.
1: I can see it when you tell the story. Your shoulders have gone up. Did you feel the change? You've lost the free, (laughs) the the spiritual warrior. This is visceral, right? You can still, stressful, it's the cortisol.
0: So I decided the only way for me to truly stay on purpose and serve was to cut the absolute guts out of my business. So for the first time in... 17 years, I had to make people redundant. You know, I had to make some really brave decisions. I announced the closure of the print magazine. But the thing about that is, I told people exactly why I was doing what I was doing, my narrative. And so as a result, what happened was extraordinary. Like, overnight, people like fell more in love with the brand and what I was doing. And I think it almost gave permission for other people. Sarah Wilson, um, who had I Quit Sugar, she then shortly after decided to, you know, close that. Samantha Wills had, you know, her jewellery brand for 12 years, she decided to close that. Jill stevana from Star Runner, you know, they were going through issues. So it actually, in me being courageous enough to say we're at our peak But actually, it's not working from a business perspective, and I can't keep going like this. It's not sustainable, um, and we're going to collapse. So, it almost, by me being courageous enough to cut the guts out of it and allow myself to stop and reimagine and recalibrate, it almost gave other people permission. And I think, you know, with small business, I hear this actually all day, every day, and big business for that matter. You've got to stay true to your purpose, but you've got to be able to. Morph iterate, change as the markets and the economy and you know people communities change, you've got to be able to change and become detached from specific platform and delivery mechanism, and also if it's not working, sometimes you've got to like cut the guts out of it and start again really
1: important you know in performance psychology and sports psychology there's two definitions of mental toughness most people have that's pushed through and she ran the marathon and staggered over the line you see some of those people they get what's called acromegaly where they literally waste muscle some of those people are never the same again so that's not mental toughness but mental toughness i'm pushing through so 18 books and they sold a lot more you're a humble woman but you know 18 books until you have the real breakout work 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 all the aa stuff that's mental toughness The other side is when you actually get to a stage and you go, right, I'm going to break this, stop this, go a different angle and let go. A lot of small business owners, Lisa, find that really hard because of investment. I've invested 10, 15, 20 years. I'll just give it another six months. So it is very brave. Why did you not sell? did Anna Wintour, you may have signed a non-binding indicative offer and you can't say this on this podcast, but did you have any offers? Did you think about setting it up to sell or were you so caught in the moment that you didn't have an exit strategy?
0: No, I did think about selling and even thinking back to that thought breaks my heart and I'm so glad in hindsight I didn't. But what happened was, and this is ego, within the first few years, I thought, oh, this is worth like at least 30 mil. I wouldn't take a cent under. And to be honest, I wouldn't have sold it because it's my passion. And it's like what I've worked my whole life for, you know, but I did get to a point in 2017 where I actually engaged um, some guys to actually look at selling for me. And that was a really hard decision because it was like, I never wanted to sell it. I was like, this is the greatest expression of everything that I've worked my whole life for. But why I made a decision that I would consider selling was that I thought Collective Hub is such a legacy piece and has, you know, millions of, you know, followers and people who are engaged with the brand. If I'm not the right person to be at the helm anymore, then perhaps it's better off selling it to a custodian who can actually take it to the levels that it needs to go to. The problem was that By the time I'd made that decision, really the books were looking so bad and, uh, you know, that no one would really consider buying it. This is a blessing in disguise, like the greatest blessing in disguise, by the way. In the end, I did get an offer for around 10 mil, which was pretty amazing, but it went like this. And it was to a very big publisher in this country Um, and they basically said, oh, I think we can find somewhere Kind of squash it into our stable and we'll need you for four years. And it's a big corporate. And I was like, the thought of my beautiful brand being squashed into some corporate beige boardroom and me being yeah handcuffed for four years. And so-
1: Did you not think though, $10 million, okay, let's take that now, invest that money, do the four years.
0: No, nah, I didn't. The money in the world. And that was actually- the greatest moment for me, because at that point I'd lost a lot of money. I'd sold two properties because, you know, when my business was doing well before I'd bought a number of different properties and luckily I'd invested well and I decided to sell two to sort of bridge the gap. And unfortunately, you know, through my own fault, got completely sucked into the business. But no, at that point I was like, no, I can't do it. I just cannot sell myself for four years because life is short, right? Time is the only finite resource.
1: I'm being provocative, I I would have done the same (laughs) thing. I've built and sold a few businesses and you've got to know what you're in for.
0: No, it's a really important point because I believe truly wholeheartedly that we are here. We've got to enjoy what we're doing. And so that was a great moment for me. Take that money and be handcuffed for four years. No, because I know within myself 100% and now I've got the good shivers is that when you've tasted success and you know what being in flow and on purpose is like, I knew in that moment I don't feel great right now. In fact, I feel like the worst I've ever felt, but I know that I can rebuild. And so I decided to walk away with nothing, having lost a lot of money. And this is the thing, isn't it, in life? This is what makes or breaks. There are people at that point and still people are like, oh, my God, how do you live with yourself? I'm like, it's just money. I know how to make money. It's a currency. Now I have so many lessons and now that's why I say data and finances are like an absolute imperative I have daily hourly pulse checks about every single facet of my business like it is probably the singular most important thing just to ensure I never get myself in that situation again and I build in a much more robust sustain the right data orientated implementers around me you know
1: you know it's called the creative curse and look at this story it's happened to lots of creatives So the creative is the rule challenger, the renegade, everything that you are. But with the creative comes the commercial. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's getting that real balance, especially in a lot of the stuff we're talking about, publishing, writing books, platforms, and everything else. Did you ever think about stepping aside and bringing in a CEO, a commercial officer, someone that could just say, okay, just fly, go yeah. connect with insert name here yeah. and we'll take care of business. Did you ever think about that?
0: I did. I brought in a CFO and I brought in a COO. My CFO was on 170 grand my COO was on 250 grand and really the business couldn't sustain that at the time and also I made poor judgments in some of my hiring choices at the time and the thing is as a small business owner I believe we need to be the brand architect and we need to understand to some degree at a grassroots level exactly what the various functionalities of the business are because what I did was an actual fact the print magazine was absolutely flying and doing really well and was really profitable and the events part of the business flying doing really well really profitable. Where I took my eye off the ball was actually the, the digital part so we built a very comprehensive digital platform and we were doing eight stories a day as paying writers $350 to $500 a story and we were measuring the wrong data metrics. We were measuring eyeballs as opposed to revenue against that particular part of the business. And I let other people run that. And I didn't understand the intricacies of the digital part. And that's where it fell down. So what I would say is absolutely hire your weaknesses and hire those people to supplement your weaknesses. But also you need to have an understanding of actually what they're doing and what you're aiming for.
1: Three questions for you. When are you launching your next magazine? What's it called? Who's going to be your CEO? (laughs)
0: So interestingly, though, on that point, I'm so glad I went there and kind of lost everything because it comes right back to my purpose, right? Sometimes in order to teach, we need to learn the lessons ourselves and I needed to go there and you don't know what you don't know until you've been there. And I now know bigger isn't better and there are actually much more sustainable, clever ways to run a business. I am going to bring back the print. I'm looking at them. They're all in front of me. I'm going to bring back the print mad probably early 2022. I'm just going to do two issues a year. I love it. It's such a legacy piece. It was loved by so many. I'm just going to do it in a much more sustainable way. But here's the interesting thing, right? This year I think I've bought out 38, 39, two to go, print products at the height of Collective Hub with a lot more staff and a lot more physical overheads. I was doing 12 issues of the print mag a year. I was bringing out one book and one diary and I was running events and things. Now I'm bringing out like three times as many products, you know, and I've got a much bigger digital footprint and there's a lot more going on. So interestingly now, I work from my third bedroom in Bondi or wherever I happen to be, a cafe, wherever, when we can travel the world. My entire staff are decentralized. I have no full-time employees. I have an EA, I have like a lot of different, I have a bigger team than I've ever had. But the interesting thing is now the business is much more productive, much more efficient. You know, I've totally utilized technology. So we run everything through, you know, Asana and a number of other digital tools. And the interesting thing is when I was in a physical office, I used to say I'm busy, but I'm never productive because all day, every day we're in meetings, I'm putting out fires, I'm reacting. And now I can run as many projects globally, calling on the best of the best of the best. And it's only now as good as my systems and processes, how much output I can have. So the output is much bigger. Our revenue this financial year will surpass what it was at the peak of Collective Hub. And my profit, there is actually profit.
1: (laughs) Well, that's the other one we need to look at, right? And I've had experience is nowhere near as big scale global stuff. But when I've taken my eye off the ball as a small business owner, I think two things that we shouldn't get caught up with, two really bad questions actually for a small business owner. Number one, how many staff have you got? Now, I've had previous business, I had 100 staff. It was like herding cats. We were trying to get, you know, I was a fitness trainer teaching doctors how to implement medical systems. See, how do you think that went down, Lee? And especially I was a bit more brash back then. So a fundamentally flawed question to a small business owner, how many staff have you got? And I think the second fundamentally flawed question is what are you earning? What's your revenue? What's your lifestyle like? Are you living on purpose? What's your profit?
0: And it's really interesting, you know, that first 11 years. When I knew you before I launched Collective Hub, I used to be so embarrassed because people would pigeonhole how many staff do you have? And I used to be so embarrassed saying three staff. Now I'm really proud saying I have no staff. I have a lot of people working for me, but it's much more streamlined and much more efficient. And so, you know, that was my ego. That was my sense of identity. That was, you know, living life according to other people's expectations of what success meant. And actually this is a much, much more sustainable, robust, healthier way. My team I mean, I spoke in Tokyo last year and, you know, alongside, I was being translated into Korean and Japanese. And I spoke alongside a, a very astute professor in Tokyo who was teaching the theory. Of the future of work at the time. And I said to him and in front of all these people, you know, well, actually, I don't mind if my team go to the beach in the middle of the day or do yoga or work out or pick their kids up from school, or if they feel like working at four in the morning. So that's taken me a long time to get comfortable with that. But now it's all about output and productivity dependent on tasks as opposed to time in office and bums on seats and I think that's something that the world has now caught up with (laughs) and we're all having to adapt to that new way of working.
1: We had to with COVID, with WFH working from home, but I hope you stood up in front of that beautiful Japanese audience and challenged them because they have a word called karoshi, which means literally working yourself to death. So you've got this flamboyant Australian there saying, hello, I'm Lisa Messenger. I'm living on purpose. I've got no <laughs> staff. I've got a highly profitable, engaged, digital-enabled business, and I also have a podcast called Hear Me Raw, which is smashing it. I've been listening to the interviews, not just in preparation for today. I genuinely listen to your podcast, like Lewis Howes, Bradley Trevor Grief, a lot of those names I got before. So let's go to podcasting. We could talk about publishing and platforms and we've got to get you back. But <laughs> why did you finally get into podcasting? Probably were thinking about that with the magazine. Why didn't you not start two, three years ago? Why did you start this year?
0: Do you know, thank you. Good question. And yeah, it's called Hear Me Raw, R-A-W. I didn't want to do it. People kept saying to me for the longest time, you should start a podcast. And I was like, I don't want to for so many reasons. One, and this still hurts me greatly, is that through the magazine, you know, we've interviewed the best of the best around the world, but I never caught any of it audibly. So like I was like, oh, do I have to start from scratch again with all these extraordinary people that I've connected with? So I kind of fought it for ages. And then I thought, gosh, it's actually a beautiful thing to connect with people. And I do have such an extraordinary you know a little black book of amazing people and i just thought well why don't i just have real conversations and share that with people and i've actually loved the process of it it's been um yeah it's been really
1: Fun. You're in flow. I can hear when you're doing it. You're having fun. If it's some of your your girlfriends, you're giggling. It's just like a normal conversation. It's not scripted. It's not yeah. overproduced. It's raw.
0: Much like this. And you'll have to be on my podcast soon, for sure.
1: Would love to. So on podcasting, what's a good podcast question? Or what makes a good podcast?
0: Do you know? I think what's interesting is when you and I've had to learn it, you know, like I'm not a trained journalist or a trained podcaster, but what I am is inquisitive. I think it's what you said before, which is why I asked you to go deeper and disarm me if you felt at any time that I was answering something in a way that I've learned to answer. And it was interesting. I won't say who it was, but I had someone on there recently who is actually a very proficient, extraordinary speaker, and I know every time he gets up on stage, he, you know, everyone cries every single time he has a standing ovation And as I was interviewing him on my podcast, even though I was asking deep, raw questions, I could tell he was giving me the stuff, you know?
1: Press play, press play, press play. Yeah,
0: and so I think what makes a good interview, I hope, I mean I still have a lot to learn, is actually, and you've been doing it brilliantly, is actually trying to dig under that and be like, because we all, the more we do something, you kind of... What do you mean by that? (laughs) You! No,
1: no. no, But I I wish,
0: but that's why I'm like to you... Dig deeper, because I think that's what makes a good one. You would be interviewed on a lot of podcasts. I'm fortunate to be interviewed on a lot of podcasts. And there are some people who literally just read, here's the next question, here's the next question, and then do pull at anything. In fact, I interviewed our mate, I think also your mate, Cohen Ray recently, amazing guy. And I listened to something that had been done with him previously. And I listened to an interview with him and couldn't believe what I was hearing. The interviewer actually said something, something something and then he said, oh yeah, my I think my stepfather died when I was nine. I shouldn't even acknowledge that. She just asked the next question. I was like, could I have even heard that right? You know like I think that you've got to keep pulling and keep exploring and keep seeking.
1: you know Kerwin doesn't do any what well, he does. he's been doing years of work on himself and on stage and running a great events business, but and we've got him coming up on this podcast two weeks time. He doesn't have a run sheet. He doesn't have a script. He listens. And I like. I found that challenging yet stimulating that he just asks questions. And when you hear him ask good questions and I hear other podcasters, everyone's got different formats. But, yeah, so going deeper, not scripted is what's a good podcast, what's a bad podcast.
0: Yeah, and also on that, I don't script a lot. And when people's PRs or PAs will ask me before, can you send a list of questions, I actually refuse. Then they're not the right person necessarily for me because I like to go with threads and see where it goes. What's a bad podcaster? Is that what we're saying?
1: Yeah. Well, what's bad podcast or a bad podcast question apart from the obvious?
0: Or a bad question in life really is I think just continuing with the next train of thought that is scripted and not being inquisitive. I think that goes for everything from schooling when people are asking why. Don't just give them the same old convergent way of doing things. Or, you know, I think it's just being inquisitive about anything. On that, it's extraordinary with the print mag, how many people would pitch to me, you know, as I was saying before, can you run this story? And I'd always say, tell me the history. Tell me what your brand stands for. And more often than not, people couldn't even answer that. They didn't know what the roots of their company
1: was. What can I do to improve in future podcasts?
0: (laughs) Well, no, you're amazing. I think you really pull a lot of different things and you really try and ask the deeper, more raw questions interestingly, have you had any challenges when you go, are there people that you interview who just don't want to go certain places?
1: Good question. Who's podcaster? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Hello, welcome to Hear Me Raw. I'm Andrew Made. I'm getting interviewed by Lisa. Yeah, I have. Mm. and I won't mention names, but had a couple of people that have gone and I've, we know each other, work and outside of work. So there's a connection, there's a trust there, but you still have to ask. And I've, I've done that on two come to mind and at the start of the interview said look I'd like to go a bit deeper here because I've read stuff in the media and I've seen this 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 I'd actually like to know a little bit more one of the people said yeah that's fine the other person said yeah we'll we'll just see how I feel at that stage and I thought I'll still go with it and I got a block on both of them one of them it's a real block Mm -hmm. we've actually edited that bit out because it just sounds you can hear crickets you can hear tumbleweed (sighs) which is a shame because I think it would have given that person a real opportunity to show a different side to them.
0: And I think particularly those of us who are fortunate to be interviewed a lot, I think what makes a good podcaster is yet finding different angles and also as the person being interviewed to not rehash the same stories. And really it gives me a beautiful opportunity as you're asking me questions to really try and be as authentic and like, what have I learned in those moments? And I think that's the only way we learn and teach and, you know, support each other.
1: You've gone off script a fair bit today, off-pissed, and I've taken you there a few times. So There's a number of things you've told me today I haven't heard, so thank you. And I, I knew you'd be raw. It's your brand, but uh, it's lovely seeing it in action. Now, you've read a bit online in the paper and heard on the radio a little bit about COVID, but really, we've throughout this whole interview today, and when we talk about you know, what you're doing as far as your platforms, or go back way back, your purpose, your platform, publishing and podcast, it's all about future-proofing. It's all about, you know, you said going up and down, weaving with the market as well. So, I haven't wanted to just go specifically COVID. That said, what did you change?
0: (laughs) So, this is the interesting thing. And in a way, I'm almost fortunate that I nearly lost everything in 2018 because that... Actually, even though I unfortunately went through that in isolation completely, it really made me think very differently about, okay, when I rebuild, I want to do it in a way that I can move between platforms when needed. Now the world is kind of going through this in sync. So maybe even though a lot of people feel isolated and discombobulated and alone and unsure and all of those kind of things, I suppose possibly there's some kind of united Thing around it because we're all in it together. But I would say this. So, my business essentially now is three pillars. It is print, which consists primarily of books, journals, you know, a whole lot of other things, which are tools to inspire and educate. And then it is digital, which is various social media platforms, collectivehub.com, my podcast, and, you know, webinars and a whole lot of other pieces. And then events. So, live events. And, you know, I do a lot of speaking around the world now. So it's interesting, right? A lot of people say speaker friends of ours who only have the speaking piece and they don't have the other pieces. That can really hurt, you know, suddenly. Well
1: did. A lot of speakers were, you know, seven figure salaries to nothing.
0: Yeah. The majority of your income is sitting there. So this is what I've done. So, and I'll be honest, my speaking fee ranges from 12 grand to 30 grand now. So it's nice money, right? Like, and I still go, whoa, people actually pay that. But you suddenly rip a whole lot of that out. And that's a big chunk of change, right? So what I did personally this year was, it was like, well, that hurts. But very quickly, I was like, okay, turn on the print stuff. So that's why you'll see this year almost 40 print products because I just was like, okay, time and space, how can I recalibrate to share my knowledge and what my purpose is? And so I just started writing a whole lot of different journals, so social media marketing, the, um, the finance journal, like books, like all sorts of tools.
1: You know, I only allow myself to go onto your Instagram page twice a month. <laughs> I get tired and I go, I'm not doing enough. I've got to get off Collective Hub. I've got to get off. Like it has been, or jokes aside, it's and hearing that print, digital, and events, it's real clarity. I can see you've ramped up that part of your business massively.
0: And can I just say something? Because I know you've said the word self-publishing a few times, and it's funny because I think there's still um, a stigma associated with the notion of self-publishing, but I just was talking to my CFO yesterday to put that into perspective, this financial year, so... Um, you know, first of July till first of July, two thousand and twenty twenty one. I will be physically printing over one point six million copies of books and journals. So, I mean, it's a fairly robust thing now. So I laugh when people are like, oh, that's sweet. Self-publishing, like, oh, you do your own products. I'm like, well, I kind of been doing it for 19 years and we kind of have a fairly like well-oiled machine now.
1: (laughs) Can I get rid of the word fairly and put in another F word and our listeners (laughs) and viewers can work out? It's effing robust. 1.6. It's phenomenal.
0: Yeah. But again, I'll go back to I'm the brand architect. You know, I a lot of the journals I don't write. I come up with the idea, I conceptualise it, I kind of write the top line and then I have, you know, writers and editors that work with me on those. All my own books I write but I have an extraordinary team so that's how I'm able to pump so much stuff out. And what I would say about that quickly is this, I think it's really important, is about leverage and it comes back to your point a little bit about your podcast but I would say to people a really clever way in small business when we kind of think which platform should we be on, you know, gosh, we all have to pump out content. So I'll give you an example. If I write one piece of content, say it was for the magazine, A Thousand Words, I would, you know, pay someone to write that and edit and whatever else. But that one hour that I would spend with the person, I would then digitize that now, you know, turn that into a podcast or slice and dice it and, you know, a whole lot of other things. So you've got to learn how to leverage that one piece of content and use it across multiple platforms in multiple different ways.
1: Gihan Pereira, who was doing a lot of work with Matt many years ago. Remember Gihan? Shout out to Gihan. We'll have to send him a copy of this because an unsung hero, I think, in a lot of our journeys, the word I always think about in relation to Gihan is spin. If you're going to do a podcast, get the audio, record it, get some media bites, get the transcription, make some quotes. That was Gihan. So thank you, Gihan. Now, Lisa, you've done a lot. There's been some highs and lows and ups and downs, and that's life. But when you look at everything and your young life, I reckon we're all gonna live to 100, 130 plus. So you're a quarter of the way there. What are you most proud about out of everything? Either personal, professional?
0: I think most proud, you know, I, I think it really comes down to the simple things. And it's probably relationships and you know, small intimate moments with family and friends and actually being able to show up and be there to support. That's kind of where I felt to go just then in my heart. If I answered it in this sort of adrenaline-fueled, I'd be like, oh, my God, well, I'm most proud of, you know, like creating this stuff. But actually more often than not, it's the really simple things that I go okay, I've worked on myself, I've tackled a lot of my demons, I maintain a pretty holistic, healthy lifestyle, and I'm able to connect in a way that at one point, I look back to my, you know, 20-year-old Lisa, I really couldn't, you know, I had no social skills, no emotional intelligence, no semblance of who I was, what my beliefs or my values were. So I think it's really having a solid understanding of who that is. That's probably what I'm most proud of. And continuing just show up and do the work consistently. I think that's probably what I'm
1: most proud of. You should be very proud, very proud. Now, can you hold your hands up like this? There's a microphone in front of you for those listening. Can you put your hands over the microphone? Yes. And pretend it's a crystal ball. Oh, yeah. And just make some clairvoyant or crystal ball messages. You could shake the hair, whatever. You, yeah, that's, oh, you've done this before. Wow, <laughs> scaring me. <laughs> People are going to have to watch the video. I think now you're dancing. <laughs> crystal oh, you're ball. Not dancing? <laughs> I'm not doing double dance.
0: <laughs> double dance. But
1: crystal ball, what is Collective Hub doing in a couple of years?
0: I don't know. And it's not mine to know. And that's really important because I believe very, very, very much in surrendering to the process and I also believe in not, the reason is this, if I say this, oh, I'm going to start the magazine and again and now it will be entries and I'm going to have this, this and this, I find that very limiting because I believe when you truly stay on purpose and truly know in your heart, like I want to impact as many people and live my life out loud, helping as many people to overcome their own self-sabotage and blockages. If I limit myself by putting a specific terminology, productization, whatever attachment to it, then that's all I'm going to actually achieve with it. But if I just go, I want to ignite human potential and I want to touch as many people as possible, then it becomes limitless. And also from a technological perspective, we don't know what's going to be available and what opportunities there will be in two years. So really, if I can continue to kind of help and support people and grow and be the best version of me, then I'm happy with that.
1: It's a really refreshing answer, I don't know. Can I copy and paste the same for Lisa Messenger? (laughs) Would it be the same answer? So Collective Hub, Lisa Messenger, same thing open, buoyantly optimistic, yet grounded in reality. Let's see where you go.
0: I think so because if I had have even answered that like in 2012 about the print magazine, like I could never have imagined in a million years how big that would get and how extraordinarily exciting that would get. And so I don't want to limit myself. I just want to stay grounded in, you know, let's just go with this, let's continue to stay on purpose and let's blow the roof off, whatever that looks like.
1: Wow. I've got one more question for you. But let's reflect, a bit of reflective practice. We've been chatting for about 90 minutes. It feels like five.
0: I know. Hopefully people, you might have to cut it into two. Hopefully they stick with us on the journey.
1: We've probably got three. (laughs) What are your takeouts out of this? What are the things we've spoken about that have energised you or that have made you reflect? This is not the question. This is just to reflect.
0: I think the key is, you know, get courageous enough to understand what's holding you back, how you are self-sabotaging how you're keeping yourself small would be kind of number one. And, I mean, this is just me talking about my journey but reflecting back, you know, then once you've dealt with kind of that, then be courageous enough to kind of step into your purpose and understand, well, who am I and what do I want and what are my values and beliefs? And if I could do anything and, you know, money was no object and I could dream big, be, do, anything, what would that be? Like what does my purpose look like? And then I think it's around, you know, surrounding yourself with, An extraordinary team and knowing that you don't have to do it all yourself and understanding your weaknesses you know what are you great at what are you not great at where do you need to supplement that then not focusing too much on specific platforms specific delivery mechanism being able to weave morph iterate pivot with markets and flow and continue to change and push yourself and then you know learning the art of surrender But overarching around that is continuing to do the work, continuing to equip yourself with the tools to continue to step into the, you know, best version of you. I think that's really important not to become complacent, to look at yourself holistically from a, you know, spiritual mind, body, spirit, like the whole kind of piece, because it's only through that. Really, I would say health has to be number one absolute not negotiable priority because without that, we cannot do all of the rest of that. So that's probably my quick summary.
1: (laughs) What a great summary. You've just done my bullet point show notes. You've saved me 30 minutes. No, it's a wonderful reflection. It's actually really nice to see you reflect on that because you've been very open, authentic, very raw. So the final question, is there a question you would like me to have asked you that I've missed or is there a question you'd like to ask me? Ooh.
0: I think you've covered so much, although I feel like you've done so well that like each and every one of your questions, I feel like we could have pulled out for like an hour on each one. So maybe we need to create an entire series.
1: (laughs) I think you're coming back again and again. You've just dubbed yourself in.
0: But there's so much in that, you know, and I feel like it's only because I've sort of failed so many times or tried so many different things that I have a lot of knowledge and learnings around it all. So we can unpack more anytime. Um, what would I like to ask you? Uh, how are you feeling in your life right now? Like truly, honestly, are you on purpose? That's
1: a great question. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Uh, we've got a baby girl, Sophia, who, and I wasn't thinking of her name looking up, I was just thinking she's six months old on Monday. So, COVID for me, Lise, we lost 90% of revenue. Tony, my partner, she went on maternity leave. And then we had a little baby on the 1st of May. And then our family didn't see little Baba Ganoush and, and honoring her Lebanese heritage. I just said that joking one time, and we now all call her Ganoush. <laughs> <laughs> just gorgeous change. But our lives were tipped upside down, got very close to closing the business, was told we probably should. I'm loving life. I feel healthy. I feel challenged. I'm in flow. We've done a whole digital backflip. We're doing an amazing program like this with NAB, and I'm on purpose. And when I was asking you that question, I couldn't help but reflect. I've said no to a couple of things recently because they weren't on my purpose. So my purpose is waking people up to a better way of living, working, and leading so that they reach their full potential. There's some similarities there. So if I feel like I'm the jolt, the slap, really being honest with people, getting them to step back and think... And if it's about well-being, if it's about productivity and leadership, and they're becoming a better version, I'm on purpose. So today, I totally feel on purpose, totally feel on purpose with what we're talking about. And yeah, I'm feeling really happy.
0: Yeah, good. Well, thank you. It's really beautiful to connect here. And thank you to Nav, Extraordinary Initiatives. And yeah, hopefully we get to actually see each other in person soon. And I will be much more conscious about being a much better, more present friend with you.
1: We've all been busy during COVID. So for those people who want to have their human potential ignited even further, because you've got so many resources, whether it's publishing, whether it's digital or your events business, where is the best place for people to find you?
0: Probably or just Lisa messenger or collective hub across all and every social channel
1: (laughs) awesome i'm not even going to do a rap there's been so much you rapped it yourself there (laughs) and i don't mean that sort of rap as well lisa it's been a pleasure and i'm going to take you up on it we're definitely going to do a few more of these down the track i'm going to just squeeze out more of that wisdom but also the honesty and the realness from you thank you so much my absolute
0: pleasure thank you andy
1: Hey, it's Andrew again, and we hope you enjoyed that interview. Just a quick note to remember to please go to nab.com.au slash businessfit. We hope you really like this episode and received lots of value, and we would love it if you can go to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast and click on the subscribe button. We'd also really appreciate it if you share it with friends or colleagues you think might also benefit from these messages. And we'd really appreciate if you can rate and review it. We love seeing your messages and love seeing your ratings. Okay, that's it for this time. We look forward to connecting with you again on the next episode of NAB Business Fit.